Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. I'm your host, Adam MacDonald. I decided to take a bit of a mini break for the last few weeks from the podcast, or at least editing the podcast, social media as well. So if you're listening to this podcast, at least when it was aired first, you would have got it or are getting it because you follow the podcast stream itself rather than me promoting it on social media. I think it's just good sometimes to just completely delete all the apps and notifications etc and just not use them for a bit so that's what i'm doing so for those listening when this comes out first you're my true followers and i appreciate you but i appreciate everybody that listens nonetheless so in today's podcast i have on with me greg knuckles i really really look forward to recording this podcast we set it up sometime last year because greg is just a fountain of knowledge when it comes to training and that's specifically what we talked about today we talked about the difference between training for strength and training for hypertrophy. We get into a little bit of detail and get a bit sciencey for those who enjoy that. And for those who don't enjoy it, maybe you will enjoy it. Just stick around. But I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you do like it, please leave a rating and review. But I don't want to waste any more of your time. And let's get into this episode with Greg Knuckles. So Greg, my man, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been, I've been really looking forward to getting you on. I've had a bit of a break from the podcast for two or three weeks now, but I really want to get you on. I've been listening to your Stronger by Science uh, for quite a while now. How long has that been going? Um, well, so Eric Trexler has been doing the show for, oh, about eight months now. Um, I, I'm just a occasional temporary guest host, <laughs> um, but, you know, I've... I've been on from time to time as well, but it's it's been about eight months. So you're like a guest uh, guest host on every single episode so far. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got a decent streak going, but I, I don't want to jinx it, you know. Yeah, uh, but it's it's a great uh, podcast, and you write really really well, and as well, so in articles and stuff on your website. Um, I was actually reading through some of your older ones. Uh, I think it was like gregknuckles.com or something i don't know it's a really old website um, <laughs> yeah but you've got some good stuff on that i was reading stuff about the fat-free mass index and you really delve deep into like how bad or i suppose how limited the actual data was on that fat-free mass index because i see it on youtube all the time like you know natty or not and then people using this fat-free mass index and when you and you kind of broke it down into like how many people are actually in that uh, study and you i think you you mentioned something like if you're looking for the fastest person on earth you wouldn't just go to like a few athletic clubs in the east coast of america and get like 50 people and then that's the absolute fastest anybody could be yeah it's it's wild right because like in that study the inclusion criteria for the drug-free group was if memory serves minimum six months of training experience it may have been two years i think it was six months though uh, but, you know, not a ton of training experience and minimum, I believe, 18 years old. If you met those two inclusion criteria you were in, uh, they had a sample of 74 drug-free, just random gym goers um, split between, I think, a gym in L.A. and a gym in Boston. Um, looked at them, said, eh, none of these guys have a fat-free mass index over 25. Therefore, it's it's interesting because, like, the way the authors of the study word it, they basically say this could potentially be a a uh, first screening tool where 
if someone has a fat-free mass index over 25, maybe at that point it is worth like actually drug testing them. Uh, they never proposed that it was any sort of a hard limit. And within the same fucking paper, uh, they presented data which were very sketchy. Like, they put more faith in, in th- these data than they probably should have. Um, but looking at Mr. America winners from the time predating the invention of steroids, and like, what was it? Something like 13 out of 20 of them had a fat-free mass index over 25. <laughs> so, like, yeah. if if anyone just pulled up the fucking full text of the study, it would be obvious that no one was ever proposing that a fat-free mass index of 25 was any sort of, like, hard limit that no drug-free person could ever go beyond but like that's the most stupid brain dead interpretation of that study one could possibly come up with and therefore it is necessarily the one that the internet came up with (laughs) uh because that's that's just how it goes yeah but i suppose for youtube all you need is camera and a social media presence to get your message out there so uh, i I don't think many people actually read uh, the research uh, when it comes to you know propagating information online no, I mean, of of course they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so w- when it comes to like exercise science, you seem like a complete nerd, not in a, a bad way. I suppose when I think of a nerd, I think of like computer nerd, but a, like a, a fitness nerd, you like know a lot about it. And when people think of exercise science, well, at least when I think of it, I think of you. So what is your background in that? How did you get into this? Um, or whatever, what would you call yourself? A, a content creator, or I suppose at this stage? I don't know. I I don't like to self-aggrandize too much. I would call myself a coach and a blogger because that's mostly what I do. You still coach? Yeah. I mean, if if I was writing about coaching and didn't coach anyone, I would just feel like a complete fraud. (laughs) So uh, I don't don't coach, like I don't have as many active clients as I used to. Um, But yeah, I, I still coach several people, like just, just so I myself can feel better about what i'm doing you know it's kind of like a bullshit check like Mm. if you're if you're actually in the trenches doing something i think it does give you a reality check if you are someone who makes content because like you know if you don't train anyone if you want to like make a video or write an article and you don't have to think like hmm you know would i ever try this with any client ever or like what will my clients think when when they read this like are are they going to read this and be like this doesn't look at all like the way that i'm being trained right now um i I think it i think always having some level of skin in the game helps keep bullshit in check um so i coach people just as much for that reason as as really anything else yeah i think it gives you a good perspective on things as well like a different a different lens to look through um i noticed that i just came off the back of a prep there and uh, i pretty much dieted for like 12 months and like most of the things that i did towards the end were not like on paper optimal but like literally got me across the line and i wouldn't have been able to do it and if i wasn't somebody who was like in the trenches i would be like why are you doing that it's like stupid you should do the you should do the the optimal thing because you're gonna lose muscle or you're gonna not have enough energy or whatever um 
so i think yeah that makes complete sense do you have a a background i think you you've done a some level of college a bachelor's degree in exercise science is that correct uh yeah so i have a bachelor's in exercise science and i have a master's in exercise science as well nice and you've been pretty much interested in powerlifting uh, all your career right yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I I kind of got into the sport by accident. Um, so I played uh, football, basketball, baseball in high school. That's American football. Um, but basketball was my main sport. And so I'm like 100. And, would your listeners be more comfortable with inches or centimeters? Oh, inches, I'd say. I don't really know okay. centimeters, even though we do that. But. Uh, oh, okay, so I'm like... Five nine, five ten, um, but I I I always had like a pretty good vertical, but fairly small hands, and so I couldn't palm a basketball super well, but I could dunk if I was given a perfect alley oop. Uh, but to dunk convincingly, I needed to dunk with two hands because I had fairly small hands, and so I hired a coach to help me get my vertical up. Um, and then so You're like a Nate going... Robinson, yeah, I mean. <laughs> N- not as extreme as him. I, his vertical was what, like forty six inches, something crazy. Yeah, I think he was five foot five or something like that. Anyway, yeah. So a, I, I was going to say a much less extreme version, but really nothing even comparable. Um, <laughs> I, I think my best vertical is like thirty six, thirty seven inches. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to get my vertical up so I could play above the rim and be able to like dunk convincingly in games it was like purely a vanity thing but that's that's what I was all about um and then uh at football camp I got some pretty I got a really really gnarly concussion um like to the point that there was some level of brain hemorrhaging uh and the doctor said like hey this is really bad if you get another concussion this bad uh you could wind up a vegetable I was like I don't really want that Um, so, uh, that kind of knocked me out of team sports and it, it just so happened that the guy that I had hired to help me get my vertical up was Travis Mash, who these days is more known as a weightlifting coach, but back then he was a power lifter and pretty much only doing powerlifting coaching, uh, and also like sports performance coaching. But in terms of strength sports, it was pretty much all powerlifting. Um, and so, you know, I was bummed that I got knocked out of, football and basketball, uh, basketball especially, because that was my main sport. Uh, and he was like, ah, it's fine, Knuckles. Uh, you know, you like basketball, but you're better at lifting weights. So there's this other sport called powerlifting um, that you should check out. And so I looked into it, and I was like, oh, probably won't experience any head trauma doing this unless I do something very, very wrong. Uh, so yeah, that got me into powerlifting at, at like 14, 15 and I've just been sticking with it ever since. That's pretty cool. I think um, back in the day, well, maybe like eight years ago or so, I kind of finished up playing basketball. But that was my main thing for many years as well. Nice. Um, obviously, it's not as big in Ireland. I played for the international team, which isn't much, to be honest, um, given the the popularity and the size of the population in general. Dude, but that's, st- th- that's still sweet, though. Are you kidding me? That's legit. Yeah, I was pretty good. And then I think, I guess, I just, when I started bodybuilding or started weight training, I, I started to get, like, kind of too heavy for, like, my size. And then mm-hmm. I started to get slower. And then I just kind of fell out of love with it once I got, like, into the 
more senior age where you got to travel more and you got to commit more to it so um, yeah. yeah that's how i found uh found bodybuilding but i've i've talked to a few others as well uh, christopher barakat who was on a couple of weeks ago and he's also played basketball um mm-hmm. Uh, pretty pretty I, I guess it's pretty big in america right so um it's it's unusual for me to to speak to other people who like basketball but when in america it's pretty big actually I was at a game last week i was in chicago the bulls oh, against nice. the wizards they're kind of two of the worst teams right now though but um <laughs> <laughs> it, it was pretty pretty cool but let's get into it so um greg what i wanted to talk to you today about was the difference in training for strength and muscular size, so basically hypertrophy. You got a really good article on your website. I'm not sure if it's on your Stronger by Science website. Is is it on that site or is it on a different website? But it's a uh, it, it's, it's uh, on Stronger by Science. Yeah, it's a, it's a great article um, because I think when people get into training first, they think that getting bigger and getting stronger are pretty much the same thing, and both just happen in unison. And to an extent, right, they do, but what happens on like when someone's actually getting bigger when a muscle is growing bigger what's actually happening at that level at a cellular level well so it, it kind of depends how far back in that stream of causality you want to go because um, i mean at the most basic level uh or i guess like the most the most like immediate level um muscle protein synthesis exceeds muscle protein breakdown and does so cumulatively cumulatively over time uh and then muscles get bigger um then obviously there's a lot of stuff upstream of that that goes about you know bringing about that imbalance between synthesis and breakdown uh but yeah i mean that's like 90 percent of it <laughs> i was actually reading some something by uh, joran tromlinson recently and um i didn't get too in depth into it for for whatever reason maybe i didn't have time or something but he was saying that it's not it's not necessarily true that we always want to be minimizing muscle protein breakdown. Um, do you, do you know anything more about that? Well, he could give you a much better answer than I could. Um, so I mean, you know, I, I read all types of stuff, but since I'm primarily a coach and since most of the content I put out is aimed at athletes and coaches, I don't go quite as in depth on the molecular stuff as someone like Jorn would, because uh, he's a, a muscle protein, protein research. metabolism yeah. researcher. Um, <laughs> but my, so my, my understanding of that is that um, essentially you want some level of turnover. So not like if, if breakdown was always, say, zero, um, that could eventually lead to like the muscle would keep getting bigger, but it would kind of get dysfunctional over time. Um, cause proteins can just degrade, get damaged, and then they need to get broken down and replaced. Um, mm. and so like you need, you need some level of, of protein breakdown going on, uh, or that process doesn't occur. There's actually some, some interesting research that I don't think you should put, put too many eggs in its basket. Um, but there was a study by you, why you, uh, from 2014, looking at um, like muscle fiber characteristics of drug-free versus steroid-using strength athletes, uh, and basically found that the force output per unit of cross-sectional area of muscle fibers was considerably lower in the steroid users, uh, with one potential explanatory factor being that 
if someone's on gear, they are like suppressing muscle protein breakdown really hard all the time. Uh, and so maybe like they're not able to replace some of those damaged and less functional proteins. Whereas someone who's drug free, they build less total muscle tissue, but, uh, muscle protein breakdown is, is doing a better job of kind of ensuring that the vast majority of the contractile proteins are intact and functioning properly. Uh, it, it, it's hard to say that that is actually the cause. Uh, I, I know one of the other things you want to talk about is sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. And another potential explanation is, you know, maybe the actual contractile proteins are working similarly well in both groups, but as fibers get bigger and bigger and bigger, they just naturally accumulate sarcoplasm at a slightly faster rate than contractile proteins. And so then you get a decrease in force per unit of cross-sectional area just because the density of contractile proteins is lower. Um, so it's, it's hard to say what the actual cause there is, um, but those are two of the leading hypotheses. The other one is that as, um, as muscle fibers get larger, they're not able to clear waste products quite as well. And so maybe they get a slight accumulation of phosphate ions within the fiber, um, which can affect calcium release and like the actual process of excitation contraction coupling um, and thus force output. Even if you have, you know, the same density of contractile proteins and they all in a vacuum would work well, um, just a, a slight accumulation of phosphate ions could affect the contractile properties. Um, or, I mean, you know, there aren't that many studies looking, like comparing fiber characteristics uh, between users and non-users anyway, so maybe they're just spurious findings from small sample research. Those are those are all possibilities. Yeah, I think uh, what I did read so far was um, kind of like you mentioned, the recycling, almost like, I dare to say it, autophagy, where um, basically like a, a cleaning out or recycling of old... Uh, proteins that can be re replaced by newer ones, um, which is obviously a very, very simplified uh, breakdown of it. But when it comes to uh, strength and size, so I guess with, with muscle size, we have like increasing of the myofibrils in size, but do we also have increasing in the number of uh, myofibrils as well, or is it just um, the, the ones that we currently have just getting bigger? Well, so you do have an increase in myofibrils. So the so not like muscle fibers themselves, but the little bundles of contractile proteins. Um, so myofibrils can increase in size or increase in number within a muscle fiber. The more the more contentious question is whether you can actually get an increase in total muscle fiber number or hyperplasia rather than hypertrophy. Um, I kind of think you can, um, which I think is is kind of a, a minority opinion. Uh, how, how much do you want to get into that? Because that may be too far into the weeds. No, go for it. I mean, if, if you say it's a possibility, we want to know the answer. <laughs> okay, sure. So <laughs> the conventional view is that when humans increase in total muscle size, that is due to the individual muscle fibers themselves growing. Maybe there's some sarcoplasmic hypertrophy going on. Maybe it's all myofibrillar. And the myofibrillar hypertrophy could be due to a pro proliferation in the number of myofibrils per fiber or an enlargement of the myofibrils within each fiber. 
Um, but basically, each fiber is getting bigger, but you don't get more fibers. Uh, conversely, one could take the position, and this is the minority position, that uh, muscles do primarily grow through fiber hypertrophy, but can also grow through fiber hyperplasia, or in other words, basically gaining more muscle fibers. The reason that that is contentious is if you pick up any like undergraduate anatomy and physiology textbook or exercise physiology textbook, they'll tell you humans experience hypertrophy but not hyperplasia. But I think that that's a slightly unnuanced take because it's not... It's not like there's strong evidence that humans can't experience hyperplasia. It's that it hasn't been directly observed. Uh, but it, it kind of goes back to the saying, like, an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And so then you might ask, well, why hasn't it been observed? And <laughs> the reason why is that uh, you can't really assess hyperplasia without just, like, cutting an entire muscle out. Um, so generally hyperplasia would be studied in animal models where, you know, for example, you may have a mouse and you say train its hamstrings, uh, or you train like one hamstring and the other hamstring, um, isn't trained. And then after, you know, 10, 12 weeks of training, however long you want to train this mouse, you kill it and cut its hamstrings off and pull all of the individual fibers apart, or, well, you wouldn't do that. You would just cut the muscle in half, put it under a microscope, and then just count the fibers in the cross-section and see, does the trained leg have more fibers than the untrained leg? Uh, and, you know, maybe there's just a side-to-side -side asymmetry in how many fibers they had, but if you do that with enough mice, you accumulate st statistical power, and then you can see, like, hey, on average, we're seeing... Uh, 10 to 12% more fibers in the leg that was trained than the leg that wasn't trained. Therefore, we can conclude with a fair amount of confidence that hyperplasia took place. And so there have been three different animal models where scientists have tried to measure hyperplasia. Um, they've tried to measure it in mice, they've tried to measure it in cats, and they've tried to measure it in birds. Um, with the mice and the cats, they essentially rigged them up to do something that would look very similar to the type of resistance training that humans would do. Um, like they can build a little harness and have them do like little mouse squats or like <laughs> little cat squats. Um, for the birds, they used a stretch model where um, birds have a muscle called, oh God, I haven't read this research in a long time. I think it's the latissimus posterior so birds have two lats, whereas we just have one. Um, and so, like, they would hang weights on the bird's wings, which would put a chronic stretch on the uh, posterior latissimus. Um, and then, like, you know, after several weeks of that, they would find an enormous increase in fiber number, like 40% or more uh, in at least one study. But even in the, the mouse and cat studies, which, you know, keep in mind... Those are mammals. They're fairly genetically similar to us. Um, even with like kind of normal resistance training in in mouse and cat models, they were able to observe hyperplasia essentially any time they wanted to try to observe it. Um, there aren't a ton of studies on hyperplasia because <laughs> the actual data collection would just be tedious as fuck. Uh, literally, you just you have the cross section of a muscle under a microscope. 
and you're counting tens of thousands of fibers one at a time. Um, so it's, it's, it wouldn't be particularly fun research to do, which is why there aren't that many studies looking for it. But basically every study that has tried to find hyperplasia has found it. So then the question is, you know, is there a good a priori reason to think that that wouldn't also apply to humans? Uh, and I don't think there is. Um, I mean, maybe we're the exception, but I don't, I, I can't think of a strong reason why we would be. And there is also some indirect evidence for fiber hyperplasia in humans. So your uh, tibialis anterior, like your front shin muscle, um, your your non-dominant leg, the tibialis anterior just naturally receives more like stimulus in day-to-day life. So, you know, if, if you're kicking a soccer ball or, you know, you're throwing something and you're like, landing on a leg after you throw that's going to be your non-dominant leg uh and so generally like your non-dominant tibialis anterior accrues slightly more stress in day-to-day life than your dominant legs tibialis anterior uh and so there was a study a while back maybe like 2012 2013 blanking on the author's name um but you could probably find it on pubmed without too much searching but basically they they took people who i think died in car accidents um, removed their tibialis interiors and counted the fibers and found that uh, this, the like human cadavers that they uh, dissected had like 11, 12% more fibers in their non-dominant tibialis interior than their dominant side. And so, I mean, you know, a possibility is just handedness is set in utero and as fiber number is being set in utero and in early infancy, uh, the body just has a way to make sure that the non-dominant side tibialis anterior winds up with more muscle fibers. Uh, or I think the more plausible explanation is just through greater accumulated stress in day-to-day life, hyperplasia takes place and you wind up with more fibers in your non-dominant tibialis anterior. So... You know, that's not causal evidence the same way we have causal causal evidence in birds and mice and uh, cats. But I, I think it's reasonably strong indirect evidence. So anyway, I think hyperplasia takes place uh, in humans as well. I would not even attempt to hazard a guess of the degree to which hyperplasia... Uh, like like the degree of total muscle growth that is attributable to hyperplasia versus hypertrophy. Um, but, I mean, I, I think that the phenomenon itself takes place. Um, and I wouldn't be shocked if it takes place to a, a non-negligible degree. And whether that is, you know, it explains 20% of the total change in muscle size or 5% or 50%. I don't have a good guess, but I, I do I do think that uh, skeletal muscle hyperplasia does take place in humans as well. So muscle fibers are getting bigger. We know that for sure. And it's very probable that they're also increasing in number as well. So those that increase in number also get bigger. Correct. And we just need some subjects to tie weights to their <laughs> arms for a couple of weeks. <laughs> and, and, then then, and then conveniently die. <laughs> Yeah, and then cut their arms off um, for the name of science. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, you're so... <laughs> going to have a hard time getting that one by an IRB. 
Yeah, but that's pretty interesting. I mean, I I've heard people talk about it, but like you said, even in textbooks, um, you don't really hear much about it because it's we just hear more about the hypertrophy rather than hyperplasia. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a much more well supported phenomenon, um, and it's so it, a kind of interesting thing you see um, it, when you look at like kind of short-ish term studies, especially in untrained subjects. And honestly, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this one. Um, But oftentimes you'll see a larger increase in fiber cross-sectional area than in total muscle cross-sectional area in studies that measure both. Um, Which, I mean, if anything, is the opposite of what you would expect with hyperplasia. Um, So I kind of think that if hyperplasia is taking place, it's it would be playing a larger role in more well-trained lifters. Um, And honestly, I'm not entirely sure why changes in fiber cross-sectional area are larger than changes in whole muscle cross-sectional area. One potential reason why, um, this is is the explanation I've heard the most, is, uh, so for anyone listening to this, if you don't know how people would measure fiber cross-sectional area, they basically take like a pretty thick needle. Uh, they use a, a local anesthetic on like your quad or your tricep or your delt or, or whatever they're looking at, generally your quad. Uh, you know, make sure it's numb, stick the needle in, and literally like rip out a hunk of flesh, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, it's going to cause pretty substantial bruising. You're going to be pretty sore for a few days. Um, like it's... It is non-negligible tissue trauma. Um, And so one of the potential explanations is there is is some degree of evidence suggesting that basically your... the, The fibers on like the outside of a muscle are more active than the deeper fibers in a muscle. Um... I think that's like fairly old research, so I I wouldn't feel confident associating that with a particular researcher, but that's something that I learned in undergrad, which I haven't seen anything refuting. Um, But anyway, if that's the case, uh, potentially your your fibers closer to the surface would be undergoing larger adaptations than just kind of your average muscle fiber. Um, And so biopsies don't go super deep into the muscle. Um, cause like, Understandably. God, yeah, yeah, like God, God forbid you go too deep and like hit a bone or like hit a nerve, um, or like hit a blood vessel. That would be catastrophic. Um, so anyway, they're, they're fairly superficial biopsies. Uh, and so if the superficial fibers are undergoing larger adaptations than the mean fiber, that would explain why fiber cross-sectional area does seem to increase faster than full muscle cross-sectional area generally in the research. Um, but I, I don't think that that's super, super well understood. Mm. Yeah, I think we got a, a good enough understanding so far, and thanks for your explanation. You we, So when we kind of know now how muscles get bigger, but through the mechanisms, um, I suppose we've traditionally thought of muscle hypertrophy 
uh, happens through three mechanisms so uh, mus- muscle damage uh, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy and then mechanical tension and what's your kind of thought or, or most recent stance on uh, those three elements of hypertrophy and how much each one of them actually lead to um, you know hypertrophy D- did you mean metabolic stress not sarcoplasmic hypertrophy that's correct yeah okay um so i think so I'll start with muscle damage because I think that's, at least to me, the the most contentious one. Um, so essentially, like early research tended to find that um, training modalities that caused more muscle damage also tended to cause more muscle growth, and so um, and, and there were there were some plausible mechanisms by which damage could influence growth. So. Um, having like a, a robust enough local inflammatory response seems to like improve the subsequent uh, like hypertrophy signaling. Um, but anyway, it was mostly based on studies finding that like, oh, like types of training that tend to cause more muscle damage also tend to cause more growth. Maybe that's a, a potentially causative mechanism. Um, but then <laughs> the issue is uh generally you're going you're going to get more muscle damage from higher volumes and higher intensities uh and maybe like eccentric overloads and eccentrics cause growth higher volumes cause more growth than lower volumes generally um so like you know that's two things can correlate without one causing the other um and yeah, so I, i've definitely seen some people We've taken that uh, out of context and and I've done certain exercises like really heavy negatives only or like certain exercise that causes a lot of a lot of, a lot of eccentric load like really mm-hmm. heavy flies but not doing the concentric part or a ton of uh, like uh, ordls or something like that that are just gonna you know cause a ton of soreness and um, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's any correlation between muscle damage and soreness but I'm pretty sure there is well, I mean, theoretically, there should be. The the relationship between measured muscle damage, so like actually taking a biopsy and looking at something like Z-line streaming um, and soreness is kind of weak in the literature. But I think that... I think that the studies that, that examine that question probably use the wrong statistical models. Because um, soreness is, is a fairly subjective thing, right? So... On a scale from 1 to 10, something that you rate as, you know, a 4, if you're super tough, I may rate as 9 if I'm a pussy, you know? Um, so yeah. that would that would weaken the strength of that relationship. Whereas if you used, say, like a within-subject correlation, um, you may find stronger relationships there. So I, I do think... I do think that the relationship between damage and soreness is probably stronger than some of the literature would suggest. Um, but yeah, so th- the question is like, you know, soreness that, or training that causes a lot of soreness also tends to be pretty good for growth, but is the soreness slash muscle damage like causing the growth? Um, and studies that have been designed to look at that more directly tend to suggest eh, probably not. So, um, for example, I I think probably the best designed studies in that area, essentially, so one of the things that you 
see looking at a lot of different research, is that essentially if you just have one or two weeks of fairly easy training, it mitigates a dramatic amount of the muscle damage that you get from subsequent hard training. So this probably isn't something that most of the people listening to this podcast can go out and experience for themselves. But if, say, there's a completely... If there's someone listening to this podcast who's never lifted weights before and you're considering lifting weights... Um, one, I highly doubt that's the person, but anyway, (laughs) well, and and if so, I've, I've probably lost them by this point, (laughs) but, but if, if you're still surprised if you haven't, but if you're still here, um, if you do just like one or two weeks of really easy training, um, so, you know, the, the types of protocols used range from say like sets of 10 at 30% one RM to like you know, 70% 1RM for like triples, but like still super, super easy, super far from failure. Um, If you do that for like a week or two, then if you go into like hard training, the amount of muscle damage you accrue and the amount of soreness you get is cut dramatically, like 70-80%. And so there have been studies that essentially take that approach where one group just jumps straight into really hard training that's going to cause a lot of muscle damage and a lot of soreness. And the other group basically gets a week or two of of lead-in training that's quite easy, and then they ramp their training up. Um, and and from like that point on, they do the same training program. So it's essentially one group starting a training program with a lot of soreness and muscle damage, and the other group essentially experiencing none or very very little. Um, and in those studies, you tend to see both groups have pretty similar training outcomes in terms of strength. Hey, Greg, I think I uh, lost your mic there. You just jumped out. I'm still here. It, uh, did your mic disconnect? It's like really, it's really low or something. Uh, no. It's like really muffled and I can barely hear you. How's there it now? Go. Huh, yep. that's weird. So where are we? Okay. I think you mentioned, um, you you just talking about the study of uh, they've had pretty similar hypertrophy response from those who did like an introductory week or two. Yeah. So I, so I, I think that for like kind of beginner to intermediate lifters, um, muscle damage doesn't really directly cause or, or relate to hypertrophy at all. Um, but I think a case could potentially be made that it becomes more important for like really, really highly trained lifters again. So, there is a concept called myonuclear domain theory. So essentially, um, muscle fibers are, like each muscle fiber is just one really, really big single cell. Um, Most of your cells are are quite small, but like um, a fiber from your sartorius could be half a meter long, which is wild. Um, And so most cells in your body only have one nucleus, but your muscle fibers have uh, like multiple n- nuclei. They're they're one of I I believe two multinucleated cells you have. 
the other one is a rather large immune cell. Um, so anyway, uh, there is uh, a theory called myonuclear domain theory that basically says um, the size of a fiber is ultimately going to be capped by how many myonuclei it has, how many nuclei are within the cell, um, where essentially each nucleus can, like for lack of a better term, oversee a given amount of volume within the muscle fiber. So you can kind of think of it like a Wi-Fi router, where each router can kind of extend the Wi-Fi signal to a you know given, given area. Uh, and then if you get outside the area, you can't connect to the internet anymore. Um, so you can kind of think of myonuclei as the same way. So each nucleus is going to integrate information and produce RNA to create the proteins for like a given amount of volume for a muscle fiber. Um, and then as the muscle fiber gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you'll reach a point that if it continued getting bigger, it would have more and more area that wasn't covered by each one of those routers, by each one of those myonuclei. And so to keep getting bigger and to be able to create enough proteins to keep growing larger and larger, it needs to be able to add more myonuclei. Um, and so myonuclear domain theory is the idea that there is a cap on how large a fiber can get, um, kind of like a ratio of fiber size to total myonuclei. And so one of the things that... One of the things I think is interesting to think about is, like, why people stop growing in the first place. Because, <laughs> like, we do. <laughs> and uh, I don't think there's a, a great explanation for it. Um, and so one potential explanation is maybe as you become more and more well-trained, you just run into issues being able to accrue more myonuclei in your muscle fibers. Um and so if that is the thing that is capping growth, there's some research suggesting that you get more satellite cell activation and more myonuclear accretion uh, under conditions of muscle damage than you do, you know, under conditions of like just normal muscular tension without a, a fairly robust damage response. So if that's the case... Um, then one could argue that maybe muscle damage becomes more important again for really, really high-level lifters who are very close to their genetic limits for hypertrophy. Um, I don't know that that is the case. So I, I used to be pretty, pretty confident in that idea, and these days I'm a little bit less confident in it. Um, but it is still kind of an idea kicking around in my head that's maybe worth considering. Um, but anyway, for, for most people listening to this, muscle damage isn't something you really need to worry about, uh, as far as it comes when it comes to muscle growth. So then it's you have pretty interesting, um, just on the muscle damage, or you mentioned about like what actually stops people from growing because like, I suppose a lot of the time people just don't lift long enough, but it does slow down. But if you think about like let's say like pro natural bodybuilders who are in their 40s or even coming to their 50s um if they had never ever used steroids before then all of a sudden i haven't made like any visual or meaningful progress in 10 to 15 years but then do their first steroid cycle they're, they're they are going to add muscle like again you know even up to 20 pounds of muscle um mm -hmm. so it's it's pretty it's pretty intriguing i've never really thought about it, like what's actually going on there and um, i think uh, people would t tend to think well he's not gaining any muscle anymore because he's he's in his late 30s or 40s and now his testosterone is lower but um 
it, it seems like that's not always the case because there's there's more going on than just hormones. Yeah, so <laughs> that that's a whole a whole different can of worms. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we and, won't and go we, there. We could be here for another hour with me yeah. just sharing hot takes about potential mechanisms that constrain hypertrophy. Um, but yeah, so so moving on to tension and metabolic stress, I personally think that well. So first part, which is not what I personally think, it's it's what there's very clear evidence supporting, is that tension seems to be by far the most important factor. Um, but then, so there, there's basically two, two schools of thought on this. One is that tension is the only thing that matters. Uh, and if you expose uh, a fiber to enough cumulative tension, that will cause the growth response and you know maybe you're going to accumulate some metabolic stress in the process of accruing enough cumulative tension uh, or there's research indicating that as you accrue metabolic stress the recruitment threshold for muscle fibers goes down so you can recruit more fibers and create more tension uh, well not create more like maximal tension but create tension in more fibers um, so some people then argue that like Metabolic stress only matters insofar as it helps you create tension and more fibers. Um, the other to take it one step back, Greg. Um, when you're talking about tension um, and metabolic stress, will you break that down for us in terms of tension? You mean like increasing load over time, whether that's like actual weight or just total amount of weight lifted, and then metabolic stress would be like the the increasing of the metabolites in the muscles, right? Ah. Uh... So, so it's kind of hard to say. Um, so with tension, it's it's hard to know what the like tension growth relationship is. Um, so I think it's it's more of like a threshold based thing where as long as enough tension is created, you trigger the growth response because um, you, you tend to see pretty similar muscle growth with loads ranging anywhere from about 30% of your max up to about 80, 85% of your max, give or take. Uh, and then as it gets even heavier, where theoretically you're creating even more tension, um, per set hypertrophy actually drops off. Um, and then if it, if you go too light, you're probably not creating enough tension. So if you're training at like 20% of your max. Um, but yeah, so I mean, muscular contraction, that's that results from your uh, your sarcomeres shortening and, and pulling on each other and creating tension within the muscle. And you need that to kick off the, the processes that eventually lead to muscle growth. Um, so there's, there, there's essentially proteins uh, like on the surface of muscle fibers that hook up to the extracellular matrix surrounding the muscle fiber and they are sensitive to tension. So like when the fibers contract, uh, those it, it's, it's, so it's called focal adhesion kinase. Um, it kind of like feels the pull between the fiber and the surrounding connective tissue matrix. Uh, and that kicks off um, what's called the, the mTOR pathway. So that starts like the initial stages of that, uh, the end result being in a ramping up of muscle protein synthesis. Um, and so, yeah, it seems like you need an adequate level of tension to kind of kick that whole thing off. But it's 
it's questionable how much tension that actually requires. Um, so some people yeah, are... you probably got to balance the time under tension by not going too heavy and doing too little reps, but also then the magnitude of load so that you're just not going way too light so that you have enough stimulus in terms of overall uh, load. Yeah, pretty proximity much. Proximity to, to, to one rep max or whatever. Yeah. So, um, so th- th- then the only other question is whether metabolic stress plays some sort of independent role or whether it's just like it helps tension proceed. And I'm kind of of the opinion that it does play an independent role. Um, so for one reason, like I mentioned before, if you go too heavy and you can only get like two or three reps per set, it seems that growth per, on a per set basis does drop off, even though tension is higher. Um, so I think that basically, I, I think that metabolic stress kind of has like a threshold type thing going on the same way that uh, tension does where, you know, if maximizing metabolic stress probably isn't necessary, but if you're not accruing enough metabolic stress, you're probably not going to be able to maximize hypertrophy either. Um, but I mean, implementation is is pretty dead simple, really. <laughs> so as long as you're doing sets of somewhere between like five or six reps on the low end and like 20, 30 reps on the high end, and you're going pretty close to failure, you're fine. Um, And then just have some means of progressing over time. So, you know, whether that's sticking with the same load for a while and trying to do more reps per set uh, as your strength and strength endurance improve, or whether that's trying to do the same number of reps per set and going up in load as you're able um, essentially just trying to match the load you're, you're presenting to yourself with your expanding physical capacities as your muscles grow and your strength increases. Uh, I think you're pretty much in the clear. Yeah. I think with, um, with the more research that comes out, it's, it's more evident that we, if your goal is hypertrophy, we, we can get away with a lot more styles and rep ranges and even loads, uh, for training and you'll get pretty much, uh, the same results if you're just consistent and progress some form or another over time but i mentioned a little bit earlier about the the sarcoplasmic growth and i guess tr- traditionally like in the muscle mags and stuff you would have read like from the bros or whatever that higher reps um will create you know more um sarcoplasmic growth um you know so basically giving you like a fuller look or a accumulation of things like glycogen and, and the likes in the muscles um is that true or is that something that's a misconception so um <laughs> it's hard to say the the research on sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is is simultaneously really old and also in its infancy and so by that i mean it was first observed a long ass time ago like back in the 50s or 60s um, but it's not something that has received a lot of research attention. So even though it was first observed a long time ago, there's still only like five or six studies looking at it. Um, so essentially what we can say is that there's pretty good evidence that sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is a real phenomenon that can occur. Uh, and what we can't say is <laughs> kind of like what increases your odds of it. Um, so it very well may be that the like the the bro like gym wisdom is completely correct and that 
doing like low loads, high reps, short rest intervals um, will cause a disproportionate amount of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. I kind of think that if that turns out to be the case, it wouldn't be a tremendously large difference. Reason for that is there's there's been some research, mostly out of Stu Phillips' lab um, up at McMaster, that finds mm. that um, like after like a single training session of higher or lower load training, so you know like eighty percent one RM versus thirty percent. Um, the actual myofibrillar muscle protein synthesis, so like synthesis of contractile proteins, increases to a similar degree. So, you know, maybe maybe over time there's a slight difference um, that kind of like accumulates in the, the low load high rep stuff. Maybe will cause a little bit more sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. But I, I'm not super confident in that. One of the things that we see in general is that... Um, there's at least indirect evidence that sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is kind of just potentially a, a side effect of muscle growth, period. Um, so one of the things that you see if you look at like single fiber research, so there's research looking at fiber cross-sectional area versus fiber force output. So you can essentially like <laughs> peel away single individual muscle fibers and hook them up to a force transducer to see how much force like an individual fiber can produce. And what you see is that bigger fibers produce more force than smaller fibers, but smaller fibers tend to produce more force per unit of cross-sectional area than larger fibers do, at least suggesting that as fibers get larger, the amount of contractile proteins per unit of volume goes down, or in other words, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is taking place. So it very well could be that, like, just in general, as muscles get bigger, they gain more contractile proteins uh, and their sarcoplasm increases in volume. And the increase in the volume of the sarcoplasm just slightly outstrips the increase in contractile proteins over time, such that by the time a fiber has grown, you know, like by the time a fiber's doubled in size, say, maybe the amount of contractile proteins rather than doubling has increased by 80%. And the sarcoplasmic volume, instead of doubling, has increased by 120%. Um, so it it very well could just be, you know, kind of regardless of training style, some degree of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy may take place over time. Uh, but like I said, it's, it's one of those things where, at least in my opinion, we have enough research now to be quite sure or quite confident that it is a thing that can occur. But uh, the details are still pretty, pretty hazy. Yeah, so I guess if you want to kind of get your your best bet is is probably to have at least some variation in the rep ranges or perhaps maybe introducing some intensity techniques or shorter rest periods, either whether it's like a block periodization or just some days that you do higher rep work with shorter rest periods or even towards the end of the workout. You're not going to do yourself any harm anyway. Yeah, I, I very much agree with that. So then when it comes to like strength, um, if, if you just anecdotally observe people in the gym or, or say bodybuilders, um, it's not always the, the strongest guys in the world that are the biggest guys, nor are the biggest guys always the strongest guys. However, the big guys are still quite strong. So what is the difference between um, 
training for strength and then training for size so like like kai green right he's huge he's also very strong but he's not like a a world champion powerlifter um so what is the differences there between is a bigger muscle just a stronger muscle and is that all that matters or is there more to strength than just pure muscular size <laughs> i mean it it really just kind of comes down to whether you train with heavy loads, so like 80, 85% of your max or, or above, uh, often enough to develop a lot of skill with heavy loading. Um, so interestingly, uh, I think this is pretty cool. If you, so there's a lot of research now comparing the strength and hypertrophy effects of high load and low load training. High load, generally like 75-80% of your max or so, and low load, generally like 30-40. Uh, and so in those studies, uh, hypertrophy is similar with high load and low load training, as long as sets are taken to failure or close to failure. Uh, changes in dynamic strength, so like one rep max strength, is greater with high load training, which is what you'd expect. The loads are more similar to what is actually being tested. And yeah, like you probably need to go heavy to increase your one rep max. But the very interesting thing is that in the studies that test isometric strength, so just taking skill completely out of the equation and you're just contracting as hard as possible into an immovable resistance, they find that actually the the just sheer ability to produce force is similar with high load and low load training, which suggests that like, the actual, you know, ability of the muscles to contract and produce force is kind of just dependent on muscle size. Uh, but then there is the skill element of being able to put that to use in a dynamic exercise to post a good one rep max number. Um, and so I, I think, well, in <laughs> so a, another thing you see when you look at populations who do train for strength um, so, you know, you can assume that everyone is, if not similarly skilled, at least quite highly skilled. Um, so like, you know, national and, and world-class powerlifters or uh, weightlifters, they find that there's an insanely strong correlation between muscle size and one rep max strength. So there was a study by Brachua and Abe that came out, I think in like 2004, um, where all of the subjects were like uh, elite national world-class powerlifters and they found some just ridiculously strong correlations between uh, lean body mass and various measures of muscle size and strength in the squat bench and deadlift so like the the correlation between squat squat one rep max and fat free mass per centimeter of height was like it was like an r value of above 0.9 the r squared was like 0.83 meaning that like 83% of the variance in squat strength could be predicted by how jacked someone was. Um, so if you ran a similar study on a more heterogeneous population, um, so, you know, you have some powerlifters and then you have some sedentary people, you'd get a much, much weaker correlation because you would have a pretty big dispersal of how much skill was was present for the lifts being tested. Um, but when skill is more or less equally accounted for, bigger people lift more weight. Uh, and so, you know, comparing someone like Kai Green to, say, Blaine Sumner, one, I would 
I wouldn't be surprised if Blaine Sumner actually has more lean mass than Kai Green does. <laughs> um, just because he's like a foot taller and probably a hundred pounds heavier. <laughs> but mm. uh, e- even if even if one assumed that they had a similar amount of lean mass, if all else was equal, uh, if Kai said, "I'm done with with bodybuilding, I'm going to be a powerlifter now," he'd be lifting. I would predict something reasonably close to world record weights within like two or three years um yeah that's what i was about to ask you i was about to say if like like obviously scale comes uh, scale is a huge component of it right so you just because you're big you're not you're not going to be that strong like um because you got to do it like my my squat i don't squat that often my legs are quite big but i'm not that strong in it because they don't do it but if big rami was to like say and for anyone who doesn't know what big rami is he's pretty big hence the name uh, but if he was to do uh, just like go to powerlifting and just start back squatting all the time. Do you think that he would be like, like extremely strong and be breaking world records? You pretty much answered it for me. Yeah, I mean, I. <laughs> uh, so I mean, there are there are differences between people other than just how much muscle muscle mass they have. So mm-hmm. you know, maybe you have more or less favorable muscle insertions. And, and one thing worth noting is that favorable muscle insertions for bodybuilding aren't favorable muscle insertions for powerlifting. So for bodybuilding, essentially you want your muscles to insert as close to your, your joints as possible, and you want your tendons to be as short as possible, because that's going to give you big, full, crazy-looking muscle bellies that just pop on stage and, and look super impressive. For a powerlifter, you want muscles that insert further and as far as inserting close to a joint goes that makes your joints look smaller which therefore makes your muscles look bigger for a power lifter you want your muscles to insert further from a joint that gives them more leverage at the joint uh that's simultaneously going to make the joint look bigger and therefore make the muscle look less impressive so it would be bad for bodybuilding uh and you also want the tendon to be longer because that's going to be able to store more elastic energy um which may not be that helpful for a deadlift, but for like a bench or a squat where you have to reverse the weight, uh, a longer tendon, better ability to store elastic energy is going to be beneficial. Um, so with someone like Big Ramey, I don't think he actually has that favorable of like insertions and muscle bellies for bodybuilding. Like he doesn't, his physique doesn't look it doesn't pop in a bodybuildery mm. type way, the same way that someone like Phil Heath does. Um, it is not the cloud look. He's like yeah. Cloud. So someone like Big Ramy, maybe he has muscles that are better for powerlifting. Maybe he should give it a shot. Uh, whereas someone like Phil maybe wouldn't be that great of a powerlifter, just because even though he has so much muscle, it would be he wouldn't be able to use it quite as efficiently for lifting max weights, just because. Like the shape of the muscle and the insertions wouldn't be quite as good, um, but yeah, in in a general sense, if you assume two people have a similar training background, they're similarly well trained, their muscles are similarly good for for the sport, their insertions are similarly favorable, they're built well to get in the right positions for the lifts, etc. The person with more muscle is going to be stronger, um, but then you know, obviously, if someone trains like a bodybuilder and doesn't lift heavy all that often, they're not going to have as much skill at 
performing really, really good one rep maxes. And so then their strength would be less if they stepped foot on a powerlifting platform. But if you got them in an isokinetic dynamometer, they very well may be able to produce more knee extension torque than a powerlifter who squats more but has less muscle mass, um, which would then suggest if that bodybuilder trained for powerlifting for a couple years, they would probably be quite good at it. Um, and I mean, there's there's plent- plentiful examples of people who got their start in bodybuilding or like just hypertrophy style training and made kind of the shift over to powerlifting and did quite well. Probably the most well-known example is Eric Spoto, a guy who previously held the bench press world record at 715. Um, He like, (laughs) he he was just like a guy that just trained to get big. Um, And he posted a video of him doing like benching like 600 for six. Uh, And people were like, holy shit, this guy's strong. Um, Fly him out to super training, have Mark Bell teach him how to actually bench press like a powerlifter. And then like three months later, he breaks the world record. Um, there's, a, there's a guy who um, who trains at the gym that I train at, uh, Jamar Royster. He placed third, I believe, either second or third at USAPL Nationals this year in the 83 kilo class. Uh, I was at his first meet. He came in, just didn't look like anyone else. He was... I mean, all the rest of us were powerlifters, and he was clearly a bodybuilder. Um, Super muscular, didn't seem super, super comfortable with the powerlifts yet. Um, I knew his coach a little bit, so I chatted with him. I was like, hey, what's what's Jamar's background? Chatted with Jamar a little bit. Turned out he'd only been training for powerlifting for like three months, and I think finished second for best lifter at that meet. Um, And within like a year was top 10 in his weight class and is now top three in his weight class, like three years into the sport. Um, but since he came from a bodybuilding background, dude just had a shit ton of muscle and filled out the 83 kilo class better than 99% of people fill out the 83 kilo class. Um, see, I mean like just because a bodybuilder doesn't lift as much say today, as a powerlifter who's the same size as them or even smaller than them. Um, most good bodybuilders who have a really, really good muscular base would be quite good powerlifters if they trained for it. Yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. So basically what you're saying is once skill is at least taken care of. So after an initial couple of years of training, right, you're going to maximize skill, not a hundred percent, obviously. Um, but with more basic lifts, like let's say not Olympic weightlifting, but like powerlifting, right. Um, that it really comes down to then, uh, muscular size. So that renders the question that if your goal is pure strength and you've been lifting for a couple of years, it's probably better to do, um, more hypertrophy based training so it might be increasing volume um in addition to just strength training rather than just strength or or, or say powerlifting style training only because the biggest determining factor of your progress or your strength increases at that point is going to be muscle size oh yeah i mean i i think i think a lot of powerlifters hold themselves back because they don't commit to just like so, I mean, the the thing is, as a power lifter, if you're doing, like, off-season hypertrophy training, 
like you come from a bodybuilding background so this may not compute with you like you may think oh heavy triples for eight weeks i would hate that we think like sets of six what the fuck is this that's cardio uh but you know like generally you're not going to be able to build muscle that efficiently doing doubles and triples all the time and so if we want to drop back and build a muscular base that means taking some weight off the bar doing more reps probably doing some more sets and like that's just not what we like to do (laughs) um you know, in my opinion, that's not fun and engaging training, but it's it's useful and necessary training. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of powerlifters don't do enough of that um, and find themselves in a weight class that is below where they probably should be. They never fully fill out their frame and are thus less competitive. Uh, but I mean, ultimately, you know, it's a hobby. No one's making a living off of powerlifting. And so, if someone's willing to sacrifice a little bit of their potential in order to just enjoy their training day in and day out more, like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hate on them for it. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that a lot of powerlifters would benefit from doing more dedicated hypertrophy work. Yeah, so so it comes back kind of to what we talked about earlier in terms of hypertrophy that we can pretty much say that all hype, all rep ranges and intensities not all but a lot of them are equal if we're not going too low on the let's say i think it's some of the the meta-analyses show below four reps and up to around 30 reps so the only real reason that like somebody who is purely focused on getting stronger would be doing those lower rep ranges was would be for that scale aspect because you accumulate more volume in or you accumulate more volume more efficiently in the higher rep ranges and muscular size is going to be after a certain point the only or not the only but the the main determining factor of getting stronger so the only reason you would actually be doing those lower rep ranges is for the scale element of it is that correct uh yeah for the most part and is, is there any like neurological adaptations that occur or or is it a kind of accumulate as you've been training for a while or does it make a difference if you're doing lower reps or higher reps so that's a good question. Um, so, I mean, I- improving skill is going to be largely neural. Like, th- that's going to be something that kind of takes place everywhere between your uh, primary motor cortex and your cerebellum all the way down to your muscles. Like, that's uh, that's a coordination game. So that, that would be a, a neural adaptation. Um, and then, like, beyond that, so some of the basic things you'd learn in an ex-phys class, like better... Uh, uh, inter and intramuscular coordination, uh, decrease in uh, antagonist coactivation. Like, I'm sure some of that stuff is taking place as well, but it's it's just not going to be nearly as important as just building muscle and generally getting good at the technique. I got you. So then, final question for you, Greg. Um, with regards to hypertrophy. Um, at least what we know is that you need to be improving or increasing training volume um, some some form or another over time um, to an extent I guess it's not always the case because um, then the oldest guys would always be lifting the most which isn't necessarily true but when it comes to strength um, is it the same case you need to be increasing training volume over time but just in those lower rep ranges uh it's tough to say um so I kind of think that volume across a training career kind of kind of takes one of two trajectories. 
Um, so if you're someone who kind who's just wired to where you have to put everything possible into every set you do, I think that from like the beginner stages of training to like intermediate stages, so you know when you've been training a couple of months up to a couple years, uh, volume is is probably going to naturally need to progress over time. So volume in terms of like sets per week. And it's probably never going to need to get anywhere crazy, but it is probably going to have to trend up over time. However, I think that past a certain point, um, it starts like gradually eking back down again, just because like the amount of of stress you can put on your body in a given set goes up so much. Um, so, you know, if you if your max set of five squats is 150 kilos versus if it's 300 kilos. Those are two very different things. Like it could be a a similarly challenging set of five. Like it could be fifth reps, a grinder, no way in hell you could have got a sixth. Um, You rack it. The 300 for five is just different. Like it's, it's a different beast. Um, And so like, I kind of think that, past a certain point which is kind of difficult to define you have like a disproportionate increase in stress accumulation per set and so volume would start trending down again so that that's one direction things could take the other direction things could take is if you're someone who does kind of prefer to leave a couple more reps in the tank um then volume can stay high or maybe possibly even increase over a training career so um, you know, if, if you're doing say triples and leaving three reps left in the tank, even if those triples are quite heavy, since you're training submaximally, it's not going to take quite as much out of you. And then maybe you can keep progressing volume across a training career. Um, that's kind of the, the Shaco model of lifter advancement. Um, and so I think there's, there's some degree of path dependency there, like which one of those paths you take. Um, and it's going to depend somewhat just on the style of training a, a particular lifter enjoys and finds the most palatable. And do you think that might be one of the reasons why people actually start to see less muscle gains over time as they age simply because they can't get the same ROI on the volume that they're doing? Like, let's say you're you're 45 years old and you're, you just can't get any more volume in because you can't recover from it anymore. Therefore, that perhaps slows down progress? <sighs> That's a possibility. I don't. I don't think that's the main driver, though. All right. Well, thank you so much, Greg, for coming on today. You've been a wealth of knowledge, and uh, I'm definitely going to be listening back to this one a few times um, myself because I, I learned a lot. Thanks for having me. So, so where can people find more about yourself? Uh, so, if you want to check out the free articles I write, they're at StrongerByScience.com. Uh, if you want to check out the podcast that I am a temporary guest co-host on, that is the Stronger by Science podcast. You can find it wherever fine podcasts are found, uh, on our YouTube channel or at sbspod.com. Um, if you want to follow me on social media, I'm probably most active on Instagram. My handle is just at Greg Knuckles. Uh, and if you want to check out the research review that I put out every month along with Eric Helms, Eric Trexler, and Mike Sordos, uh, that is called Mass or Monthly Applications in Strength Sport. You can find that at strongerbyscience.com slash mass. 
So I hope you enjoyed that episode with Greg Knuckles. I certainly enjoyed recording it. Greg, like I mentioned in the opening, is just a fountain of knowledge, especially when it comes to things like training, because that's where he's really passionate about. I didn't realize how much hyperplasia had a role to play in overall muscle size, so it's interesting to see um, or listen to Greg's perspective on that. I also learned a lot about how actually getting bigger plays a role in getting stronger. I knew that it had a role, um, you know, quite a big role in the past, but I didn't realize that, you know, the main driver beyond skill acquisition is really only going to be hypertrophy. So if your goal is to get stronger, obviously you're going to want to be doing those lifts that you want to get stronger in. But for the most part, doing some form of bodybuilding training or training to get bigger is going to be the driving factor or determining factor when it comes to getting stronger so if you want to learn more about greg do follow him on the social profiles that i mentioned earlier and if you want to ask me any questions you can get me on my email address in the show notes like i said i'm not really using social media at the moment i will be in this in the future but not right now so just send me an email in the show notes and please do share this episode with friends family members distance relatives whoever you think will benefit from this And again, any ratings or reviews on iTunes or Spotify or YouTube or whatever you're listening would do the world of good. So that is it for this episode and I look forward to chatting to you in the next one.